Luke's Gospel, chapter 6 today. It's been quite a while since we've been in Luke's Gospel, and so I think we need to take a little bit of uh, time to to get our bearings again. We're in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. After you've found your place in Luke 6, would you also go back to the Gospel of Matthew? Hold your place in Luke. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. And as we begin, we're actually going to read the the parallel account of the episode we find in Luke in Matthew, okay? So Matthew 12, and we'll just read the first several verses of that chapter. It says in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1, "At At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We took an end-of-summer break from our series in Luke's Gospel. We were last in Luke um, at the beginning of July. So we need to get our bearings again a little bit. God has put this account of the life and the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus, in the Bible so that everyone who hears it, who is far from Jesus, would draw near. All of those who are far from God may draw near to Him through Jesus, His Son. You may remember, if you were with us at that time, that right at the beginning of chapter 1, Luke tells us that his purpose for writing is so that we would be certain. Do you remember this? Certain of the worth of Jesus and certain of the truth of Jesus, and so that having this certainty, we would believe in Him, and we would follow Him even to the point of denying ourselves and taking up our cross, following Christ our whole lives long, no matter what the temporal cost is. And so we have worked our way through the first five chapters, and lately we have begun to look into the beginning of opposition against Jesus. In fact, as we start in Luke 6 today, we're going to look at the the fourth and fifth episodes, consecutive episodes, of opposition to Christ. We already talked about three of these. They came when, when Jesus healed that man who was the paralytic lowered through the roof. Remember that? And Jesus, the first thing he said was, Son, your sins are forgiven. And there was a lot of opposition because, obviously, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does Jesus think he is? And then, of course, he went on to heal the man, but proving to the people his authority as the Son of Man, not only to heal physical infirmity, but to heal and to cleanse of all spiritual infirmity. And then there was 
more opposition when Jesus called Levi, the tax collector, and Jesus went into Levi's house and they began to celebrate. And he said, and they said to Jesus, why are you eating with sinners? You know, showing them acceptance and so on. And there, were, there was more opposition because Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting in those days, whereas the Pharisees and even the disciples of John did fast. So on and on this controversy and this opposition went. And that's where we find ourselves today as we open chapter 6, two more episodes of controversy. And now, you know, we've been through some miracles, like I mentioned the healing of the paralytic. We have seen the display of the glory of God in Jesus in these miracles. But even as the miracles, we take a little bit of a break from the miracles, from the display of his glory in that show of power, even now, just as Jesus is involved in discourse back and forth and talking, we continue to see the display of his glory. So that you and I, though we be far from Jesus, far from God on our own, might, seeing that glory and being certain of his worth, might draw near to God in Christ. Let's start with prayer, and we'll get into this further. Father, I pray again that you would pour out your Spirit, as you do, on us very needy people. We have various needs here today. We have different needs. We have, some have financial need. Some have great physical need. I know some of us have family, as George mentioned earlier today, about his sister out east going through the the flooding in South Carolina. I pray that you would help her. We all have these needs, God. We all have these different needs. But Father, we all share in common the need for you. We, We all share in common the need to be drawn in our hearts to you through your Son. And Father, there, this requires another miracle. This, just, this requires you to pour out your grace on us lavishly again. And so that's what we're asking for. We pray, Father, that we would see again the brightness of your glory shining in the face of your Son. And I pray that every heart here would find Jesus to be irresistible. Compel us to come through the word of your Son. We ask in his name for his sake. Amen. All right, again, today we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of controversy. The fourth and fifth episodes of of five consecutive episodes. If you looked back over the end of chapter five, you would see these episodes of controversy that have come previous to what we're covering today. Um, Once again, the, the opposition is pharisaical opposition. But here, what we are going to see is that it's all about what Jesus is doing on this day that was called the Sabbath day, covered here in Luke 6, verses 1 to 11. Now, we already went over the parallel account in Matthew chapter 12, and the reason we did that is because in that account, there are more words from Jesus that I wanted you to hear than are found in Luke 6. 
One statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 12 that Luke doesn't record is this, and I wanted you to get this. Jesus said, he said two fascinating things. Again, only one of which Luke records. But the first is this. He said to them, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And then he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now we're going to step back, we're going to do biblical theology, big picture perspective again, and then we're going to land right on Jesus. From the beginning of time, God has given to his people sacred space and sacred time. At creation, the sacred space that God made was a garden in the midst of Eden. It was a temple garden. Because that is where God dwelt with his people. God gave them sacred space. The sacred time that he made was the seventh day of the week. For at that time, in the the first week, God finished his work, which he had done in creation, and he rested from all he had done. So he established for his people sacred space and sacred time. Now, after the fall of humankind into sin, after some time, you remember that God called a particular people to himself. And he promised that through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that great nation, God would accomplish the plan of his redemption for all nations. And so, for that covenant people, God codified the sacred space and the sacred time into their law. The sacred space became the tabernacle, right? And then eventually it was realized in the expanded temple in Jerusalem. That was the sacred space. And then also God codified into their law the sacred time. Again, the seventh day of the week that was known as the Holy Sabbath. Now, why? Why did God give this sacred space and sacred time? Is it just because God likes, you know, fanciful things and religious trappings and, ooh, sacred space, ooh, sacred time, this is special. You know, it's much greater, richer, deeper than that. So why did God give this sacred space and sacred time to his people? Because this is key, key in on me, because God would have us to draw near to him. God gave sacred space and sacred time so that through them, we could draw near to God. The temple was that place where God came down and he dwelt with his people. It was the dwelling place of the immediate glory of God. It was the most sacred place on the entire planet. And then the Holy Sabbath was the day that God set apart for his people to draw near to him as they rested from their labors and spent that day honoring the Lord together. So in the temple and on the Sabbath, God's people looked to him and they drew near to him. He gave them sacred space and sacred time so that God and his people could meet and draw near. I want to read uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 8 and following. You don't have to turn there. But this is what the law said. In fact, 
the, the Sabbath day was so important to the, the spiritual well-being of the nation that it became, the requirement for the Sabbath day became the fourth law in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, it means rest, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, both the temple and the Sabbath are great gifts of God to his people. Because where would we be without them? Where would we be without that sacred space and that sacred time to draw near to God? It's very clear from Scripture that we don't set the parameters of our relationship with God. We don't come to God just however we want, whenever we please. God establishes the boundaries. He does. There are clear boundaries. So God gives us the space and He gives us the time. Thank God he did. It was out of the overflow of his goodness. He gave us the space. He gave us the time. He gave us the temple. And he gave us the Sabbath. It's a gift of his grace. Okay. But now I want you to realize something. And when you realize this, I hope that it stirs in your heart again to love and to sing and to wonder over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth. That Jesus is in fact greater than the temple. And he is greater than the Sabbath. And he is the fulfillment of both of them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. What the temple and the Sabbath meant to God's people before. That they could draw near to God in that place. And at that time is now fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we draw near to God through Christ. And God draws near to us through the person of his son. Who was in flesh for us. And lived for us. And died and rose for us. It's through him that we draw near to God. It's through Jesus that we find that Sabbath rest. Now God does not dwell in temples made with the hands of man, but he dwells in the hearts of his people who have been made new by the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in us by his Spirit. So he is the fulfillment of the temple of God. And he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath because he gives rest to our souls. Not rest simply on one day of the week, but that eternal rest that we might cease from all of our spiritual labors and spiritual strivings to reach to God. He gives us rest for our souls. So, that's what Luke 6 and the parallel account in Matthew 12 are all about. Let's read over these uh, first couple verses in Luke 6. On his Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? 
This is a big deal. This is a gross violation of the law if, in fact, Jesus is guilty of work with his disciples. Were the Pharisees right? Was Jesus violating the Sabbath law? I think that the answer absolutely has to be no. He was not, and his disciples were not, violating the Sabbath law. What they were guilty of, guilty in quotey fingers, uh, what they were guilty of was violating the Pharisaical tradition. For years, the Jewish rabbis had compiled new laws and rules that they were adding onto the law of Moses, the sacred scriptures. And they were actually putting these laws on par with the authority of the Bible. So they actually had 39 different classifications of work that people could not do on the Sabbath. And then umpteen subsets of kinds of work that several of which, you know, the disciples did here. So he wasn't guilty of violating God's law in the Old Testament. He was simply guilty of, guilty of going against their sacred traditions. Now, how can Jesus answer their charge? He says, why, they say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do? Why are your disciples not doing what is lawful? Or doing what is not lawful, I should say. How can Jesus answer this? Well, one thing, he could say, forget your tradition, dummies. I care for God's commandment. I don't care a whit for your traditions, your commandments. Or he can say something that actually supports his case and will confound them and proves amazing and displays his glory. And of course, it's the latter option that Jesus chooses. He says in verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Jesus points to an incident involving great King David. It happens long after David has been anointed to be king, but still before he has actually succeeded Saul to the throne. You remember that transitional time where Saul hates David, very jealous of David's popularity. He's determined to destroy him. And so in this one event, David is running for his life. He spent years and years running for his life, and he got um, a great group of, of followers who are with him. So on this one occasion, he and his followers are starving. And so they go to the high priest by the name of Ahimelech, and they ask him for bread. And Ahimelech says to them, and you can find this account in 1 Samuel 21, he says, I don't have any bread, except I, I have the sacred bread in the tabernacle that is reserved for the priests. And David says, if you give it, we'll take it. And Ahimelech did. He gave them this bread, which was to be preserved again, for the priests. Ahimelech put two things, you still with me? Ahimelech put two things before the requirements of the ceremonial law. He saw David's need, and he said, this is more important. This, his need takes precedence over the requirements of the ceremonial law. He saw David's need, and the, and the second thing he put before the law was David's identity. David needed mercy, And David was also the Lord's anointed. And that's why Ahimelech gave him the bread. 
And so Jesus, he said what he did, which we just read in verses 3 and 4. Now, there are, there are two parallels between Jesus and his followers and David and his. First of all, there's the need. Jesus' disciples have need of grain like David's followers had the need of bread. But there's also the parallel of identity. David was the Lord's anointed for the time. But beginning in David's day, and long after David was gone, Jesus, or God, promised to the people of Israel a king like David, who would be in fact greater than David, a descendant of David, who would be David's greater son. And he promised that this particular king would take the throne of David and reign, in fact, over all the earth and reign forever. In Daniel's prophecy, that Messiah individual who will take David's throne is called the Son of Man. We have already seen Jesus use this title for himself. Remember? When he said, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, he says to the paralytic, uh, take up your bed and walk. So he's already used that title, the Son of Man. Now he uses it again. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see why he uses this episode? There's two parallels. There's the need and there's the case of identity. Why should David have the bread? Why should his followers have the bread of the presence? Because of who David is, the Lord's anointed. Now, if David can have the sacred bread, the question is, what can David's greater son have? What can David's greater son, the son of man, have? David has the bread. Jesus has the day. So he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, the Bible says in Revelation, Jesus is the root and the branch, the root and the descendant of David's dynasty. He is the founder of the dynasty and he is the fulfillment of all the promises of the dynasty. And Jesus is saying that he is the founder and he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The Bible declares about Jesus, God's son, he is the beginning and he is the end. This is who Jesus is. So the Pharisees, because they want to keep the Sabbath day holy, would take grain out of man's hand. But the Sabbath was given to man, so God had that time to pour out his blessing on the people. What did did God give the Sabbath for? So that our lives physically and spiritually could be renewed. He gave the Sabbath so he could give. The Pharisees want to take from man. But Jesus is the bread of life who will lay down his life so that all may come to God in him and eat and live forever and have rest, eternal rest for their souls. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. Now we move on in Luke 6, verse 6, to the next episode. I want you to see in verses 1 to 5 that Jesus is not just some great debater. I mean, he really shut them up, didn't he? They were like, what? (laughs) 
I guess. You know, he, he confounded them. But he's not just a great debater that's scoring awesome points. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus himself is awesome. The point is, he wants us to show that he is the beginning and the end of all things. That he is Lord of the Sabbath. That through him, God gives to mankind. He is awesome. And if he is ours, and we are his, then we have all that we need. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. It's Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So that's right where he is, and he's teaching. Also present, there's a man with an atrophied hand, a withered hand. Now, the Pharisees know, just like everybody else, that Jesus has the compassion to heal, And he has the capacity to heal. He has this reputation. Everybody knows it. And so, to the Pharisees, the man doesn't mean anything. That that man who has such a great need is just bait. His need is the lure. And Jesus' compassion, his, his love for the hurt, his, and his power to heal, all of that will be will be drawn in. They they know that Christ is going to do something about this. So the man is the bait, and the Sabbath law is the trap, which will spring shut and and trap Jesus, unable to escape from all their accusations. They'll know that if he breaks the Sabbath law, then they will have him. Do you see the evil that is in their hearts? I mean, this kind of evil belongs in a category all of its own. It's outrageous. They don't care anything about this man and they hate everything about Christ. According to their tradition, unless this need is a matter of life and death, then any kind of medical treatment is supposed to wait until Sunday. You don't do that on the Sabbath day. You at least, you you wait till sundown. That's when their day ended. You wait till sundown and then you can seek some treatment. Unless it's a matter of life and death. This is outrageous. This, This evil in their hearts is outrageous. And I hope that you feel it. How anyone could think like this. And if it's outrageous to us, how outrageous is this evil to the Lord Jesus Christ? From the beginning, it was supposed to be that on this day especially, that people would draw near to God and receive from God His blessing. But the Pharisees have so twisted in their perverse hearts, they've so twisted what true need is, and they have so twisted what true blessing is, they have twisted what the day is for, and so twisted in their hearts who the Lord of the day is, that they would have the need stay, and the Lord of the day be gone, and that would be keeping the Sabbath day holy. How messed up, how perverse and how twisted this is. How corrupt. And this is how much we all need a Savior. Because we are all prone to twisting the law of God to our own advantage and other people's disadvantage and detriment. We all do this. We all play the hypocrite and the fool. We all exalt ourselves and put others down. 
what we see in the Pharisees is how much we all, you and I and everyone, need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, reading in verse 8, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? What does God require on the Holy Sabbath? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. By the way, as kind of an aside, do you think this man was ashamed of his hand? That his hand was atrophied and withered? Of course he was. And the reason, especially, was because in that particular society, the common notion was that anybody that had an infirmity or a disability was under the judgment of God. And that infirmity was proof of the matter. So not because of the man's heart, but because of his hand, the religious leaders lumped him in with the worst of sinners and said, you are under the judgment of God and that's proof. So naturally the man hides it. Naturally, he puts it aside so people can't see. So look at what Jesus says again. He says, stretch out your hand. Bring your hand out of the darkness and into the light. Bring it out. Stretch it out. And this man, believing in Christ, obeys. Faith, working itself out in obedience, matters. He must believe. He must obey. And the Bible says his hand is restored. He did so and his hand was restored. Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now that there's one word there in the original that's translated filled with fury. And the word is really, it's an intense word. Now filled with fury, that's pretty intense too. But the, the word has the idea of a rage that is so boiling, it's on the verge of absolute madness. I mean, Jesus is, in this wording here, he is driving them insane. It's like they could say, Jesus, you are driving us crazy. And they, that would be on to getting into, that's really what their, their fury is all about. That's how much they feel rage. Why? Well, Jesus has just showed them up big time, hasn't he? Nobody who is religious wants to appear to be irreligious. And nobody who thinks that they're on top of their game and really smart wants to appear to be dumb. And all of a sudden, these people who are very religious look very irreligious. They think they're holy, now they look utterly, completely corrupt. They think that they're so smart, and now they look really stupid. They look like irreligious idiots. And that's why they're filled with fury. But there's something else, too. What was the plan here? What was the conspiracy? The man will be a bait. The Sabbath laws will be a trap. Jesus will heal the man, and then they can accuse him. But what did they have on Jesus here? I mean, imagine these guys going to their higher-ups and saying, okay, we got Jesus now. He's guilty. Really? What did he do? He violated the laws of the Sabbath. Okay, tell us everything. Explain it. They say, they say, well, there was a man 
in the synagogue with a, a withered hand. And Jesus told that man to put out his hand. All right. And then, then it got better. What was involved? Did he wrap it? Did he massage it out? I mean, how long did this process take? No, he just, he told him to put out his hand and it got better. That's all you got? Come back when you actually have something. So it's no wonder that they are filled with fury because their plan to put an end to Jesus has completely failed. Because by the authority of his word, he works wonders. The word of Jesus works wonders. He speaks and his word does, gives life, it heals. This is who Jesus is. There is something that we need to understand, which again, when we take into account the parallel account in Matthew, this, this comes into light. There was nothing more sacred in Old Testament Judaism in the day of Jesus than temple and Sabbath. And for good reason. It's the sacred space and the sacred time in which God and his people draw near. Within a year or two of these episodes, something remarkable happens. Among a certain rapidly growing group of Jews, loyal Jews who love the law and who love the God of the law, the sacredness of the temple and the sacredness of the Sabbath is seriously diminished. How could that be? By the thousands, they worship God in their houses, hearing teaching, breaking bread, saying prayers. And the, the, the focal day for all of this gathering is not the last day of the week, the Holy Sabbath, but is in fact on the first day of the week. Not Saturday, but Sunday. Now, if this rapidly growing group of Jews is determined to win their fellow Jews to this way, this method would not be effective. You, you don't take the temple and the Sabbath, and which are so sacred, and diminish their sacredness to such an extent that you prioritize worship in your houses and you prioritize the first day over the last day of the week. You're not going to win people. It's not politically expedient. It's not evangelistically expedient. It's not some stroke of brilliance like, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we say that the temple is not so important anymore? You know, the priesthood and the sacrifice, not a big deal anymore. In fact, we just get rid of the priesthood and the sacrifices. And let's let's say that, uh, you know, the Sabbath day, not that important as it was. Let's actually gather together and worship on the first day of the week. That's not evangelistically expedient. It's not a stroke of brilliance. That would, in fact, be a stroke of idiocy. If they're trying to win people to their side, their fellow Jews who love the law. There's no reason. I want you to think about this. There is no reason to make Sunday so meaningful unless something happened on a Sunday that changes everything. It can't be explained. 
You would never do this. You would never make Sunday the priority over Saturday to win fellow Jews. It can only be explained by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, actually. The only thing that could explain these moves is that the one they claim to follow, who is Lord and Christ, is in fact greater than the temple and greater than the Sabbath and is the fulfillment of both of them. And despite his crucifixion, this one is alive. He has conquered the grave. He has been raised from the dead on the first day of the week to bring us to God. It is the Lord's day. The seventh day was the day on which God finished his work of the first creation. Resurrection Sunday was the day on which Jesus Christ finished the work, all that was required for the new second creation. So what is there to say? If the temple and the Sabbath are gifts of God to mankind, and the temple and the Sabbath, the sacred space and sacred time, are now fulfilled in Jesus... It's in Jesus that we draw near to God and we find our rest. Then we must come to God in Christ. We must not let anything hinder us from coming to God in Jesus. And don't we dare say that I'm going to come to God on my own terms. Can you imagine somebody back in the days of Moses after the the tabernacle had been established as the, the sacred space and the Sabbath was codified into law, someone saying, Yeah, the tabernacle is all right. But you know what? I really like that location over there. I think that's where I'm going to come to God and meet with God and offer my worship. The Sabbath is okay, but I really like Tuesdays. Tuesdays are it. That the people would say, are you crazy? You, you can't set the parameters of your relationship with God. God does that. You come to God on His terms, not your terms. That's what they would say. Now that the space and the time for us to draw near to God are fulfilled in Jesus, how dare we say, I can come to God on my own. I can make my own path to God. I've got this other religion. I've got these other priorities. I I like, you know, uh, I develop my own spirituality. Jesus is the way to God. God has given to us His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Him that we meet God, and it's in Christ that we find eternal rest for our souls. So don't let anything keep you from coming to God in Jesus. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Have you drawn near to God from the heart in faith? Have you come near to God in Jesus Christ? Have you had that encounter with God where you have confessed your sin and your guilt and you said, I know what I have earned by my life. I am guilty. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. You must save and you alone. 
Have you said to God, confessed, that Jesus Christ is the only way and your only hope? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Once you have drawn near to Christ in faith, don't stop. Keep on coming near to Christ with the people of Christ because it's a package deal. You draw near to Christ, you also are with his family. You keep on drawing near to Christ. We believe in his awesomeness. We believe in his glory. And together we hold steadfastly to Christ who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Because we know that Jesus alone is where we meet God. And it's in Jesus alone that we can find rest for our souls. Are you in? Are we all in? Are we drawing near to God in Christ? Let's do so. Father, we bow our heads and we bow our hearts and we raise our hands and we praise you for the gift of your Son. Father, Jesus is so much better than the temple. It's in Christ that we meet you. It's in Christ that we draw near and we worship from the heart. He is so much better than the old Sabbath day because he gives us eternal rest for our souls. Thank you, Father, for your immeasurable gift, the gift of your Son. I pray, Father, that every heart here would be open, awake to the glory of God and Jesus. Every heart here would love and sing and wonder over Christ and the awesome, complete display of your glory in the face of Jesus. May we all worship him in spirit and truth. Put all of our hope in him and in him alone. He is our righteousness. He is our life. He is our hope. He is our rest. He is our eternal song. In his name we pray. Amen.